Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett, the Editorial Director at PR Week, guiding you gently through another pod. Good to be back after a couple of weeks out. And uh, we've got a great guest today. We've got Stephanie Smirnoff, who's coach in residence at Lippy Taylor. So looking forward to finding out what that means. And I'm delighted to be co-hosting with Diana Bradley, PR Week Diana, our Associate News Editor. How are you doing, Diana? I'm great, thank you. And uh, just before we started recording, I did warn that somebody is mowing their lawn. So to our listeners, I hope you cannot hear that. But yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You will rise above all the background noise, as always, and I will in context up. for us. But uh, but welcome, Stephanie. Great to have you on the show. And uh, yeah, thank you. how are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. It's great to be here with you guys. So we've followed your career at DeVries and Edelman and then Scholastic on the client side. And I think you had some time at L'Oreal and Donna Karen. But then you've been at Lippy Taylor in recent years and you've got this really interesting role called Coach in Residence. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that, what that means? Because obviously people, working culture, the future of work, it's what everybody's thinking about these days. So I imagine your your job is really playing in all those areas, yeah? Yeah, absolutely, Steve. I think in some ways this is almost a classic COVID professional story because the very thing that makes our internal coaching program so strong at Lippy Taylor is also something that I personally benefited from, which was this recognition that we need to think flexibly and think differently about all the different ways that we support our employees so that they can unlock their best, their best potential, their best performance. And you got my LinkedIn history there exactly right. You know, the one caveat I would say is that when I joined Lippy Taylor in the fall of 2020, I was actually in a different role. I wasn't hired to be the coach in residence. I was actually hired to be the chief engagement officer. And very long story short, I ended up wanting to make a professional pivot a few months after beginning at Lippy Taylor, which by the way, to be very clear, had nothing to do with Lippy Taylor. It was, it had everything to do with just how I was feeling after a really great 30 year run in the PR business. And for me, I just was, was drawn it related towards... to COVID, Stephanie? Did we, did that I think, a, what were you thinking yeah. about that beforehand? So I had always been really intrigued by the executive coaching profession long before COVID. I had benefited from it actually um, twice in my career, once at DeVries and once at Edelman. And I always thought, oh, that that might be an interesting career path, but I never took that seriously, you know. But I do think and actually, I think Diane is reporting around the boomerang phenomenon, um, you know, touched on this. I do think that COVID provided an opportunity for me and many others to take stock of what they were doing and figure out if maybe there was a need for change towards something that felt just a bit more fulfilling. And so as I was you know, doing some soul searching in the fall of 2020 or really the winter of 2020, I realized that the thing that I was consistently the most energized by, even looking back at my career in PR, client side, agency side, it didn't matter. It always came back to talent development and being able to work with teams and develop these close trusting relationships with teams as a manager, not as a coach, and just 
help bring out the best in the people that worked for me. And so I think that's that was the final moment realizing through all the disruptions of COVID, the thing that always kept me going and, and really quite motivated was the people that I worked with. And this is where the story is almost like, you know, a made for TV movie, because there was this moment of serendipity where I was contemplating this career pivot. I hadn't really told my boss that yet, Paul Dyer, uh, the CEO of the Lippy Taylor Group. So there was that. But meanwhile, Paul had been sort of incubating this idea that was very much in response to just a thing that we, even before the great resignation, great reshuffling became a thing. There was this constant need from the staff of more, better, different ways to take charge over their own professional development, more mentoring opportunities. People weren't saying they wanted coaching, but it really kind of was coaching. And so Paul had this idea of maybe some kind of a, he was calling it at the time, a mentor in residence program. And he sent a note to the leadership team, and I was still a member of the leadership team. This is like January 2021 at this point, and said, this feels like an idea that could be really interesting. We can create this internal mentoring program for our senior leaders. And we could bring in, maybe it's an external consultant, maybe it's a senior industry pro, you know, a seasoned PR practitioner who's ready to make some kind of a change to run this program for us. And I get this email and I'm like, are you kidding me? Has the universe just put this gift in my lap right as I'm contemplating pivoting into a more people-centric role, coaching, my CEO is coming up with this program that it, that essentially could be reframed as an internal coaching program. So I <laughs> sort of took a leap. Synchronicity. I, I mean, right? And, you know, I think one thing that I started doing more of during COVID was just like listening to signs from the universe at the risk of sounding a little too kumbaya. And this felt like a very clear sign that this was something I could do. This was something I could do to add value to the company, but also fulfill this desire for a pivot and a change. And so that's that was really sort of the impetus. And so now, a year and a half on, we have developed this internal coaching program. Um, and I should say that it was very important to me that I get certified and credentialed as a coach. If I was going to do this for Lippy Taylor, I wanted to really do it, you know, with rigor and discipline. There are a lot of people out there who can hang up a shingle saying, I'm a coach, and I wanted it to be substantive. So... Um, while we were developing the program parallel path, I was also getting certified and getting my credentials. So we began with about 10 um, senior leaders, I'd say VPs and above, um, from across disciplines at the agency last April. And the program's now grown to over 25 people who are actively engaged in the coaching program. And we call the program the leading edge because, you know, double entendre, but we really do believe it's not just that it's an edge for the agency as a recruiting tool. But it addresses the fact that at any given moment, um, someone going through a professional transformation or a professional growth journey is, is coming up to the edge of a big new leap forward. Maybe they just got assigned a huge complex new client engagement, or maybe they're facing the next big promotion. So the idea that the leading edge is something that can coach people to take the step when they're at that edge, that inflection point, and continue to grow, that's really the intention. And it's been unbelievable, I have to say. Yeah, I want to dig into some of the details of what that involves on a day-to-day. But just to put it in context, we've just finished our agency business report, and that talks about how people did in 2021. Lippy Taylor had a great year, grew 60% on the back of a year, a COVID year, where it grew 12%. It's been outstanding mid-size agency of the year, two years running. 
It's uh, retained 90% of its employees, which prompted Paul Dyer to say, great resignation, my ass. So that was (laughs) like, this is, it does seem to be working, doesn't it? So tell us about what the day-to-day role of a coaching residence involves and how that's evolved, because presumably when you started, it was pretty much, well, tell us, was it all uh, remote or and then how much of this is now sort of migrating into more of a one-on-one or personal setting or group setting in person? Sure. Yeah, as you say, Steve, it absolutely did begin remote when people weren't even really venturing back into the office at all. Now, Lippy Taylor is Uh, We are a flexible remote hybrid employer right now. Certainly for New York employees, there is a strong suggestion, not a mandate, a Muskian mandate. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. It is suggested that when there are big events going on at the agency, you know, all staff town halls, things like that, that people in the New York area make an effort to come in in person. But it is still largely flexible. So fortunately, coaching, even before COVID, coaching is a discipline that can be done pretty comfortably either on a screen or even old-timey by phone. So I found that it actually didn't hinder in any way the the traction of the program by the fact that we weren't fully back on site yet. But to answer your question about the day-to-day, you know, people are designated, you know, invited into the program. And to be clear, this is not a remedial coaching scenario. You know, this is coaching for performance. This is coaching to help talented folks unlock their very best. And very often what coaching hones in on are the ways that we can really get in our own way of our own growth. That might be because we've developed self-limiting beliefs about ourselves or self-limiting behaviors. And so coaching, and I should say, and anyone listening who's been coached will recognize this, coaching is not therapy. Coaching is also not advice giving. In fact, when you're trained as a coach, you are trained very much not to give advice because what you want to do is help the person you're coaching arrive at their own solutions and their own insights. Yeah. Yep. And that's how they develop the muscle memory around whatever the behavior changes. And trust me, it's an exercise for me because, oh, I do love to give advice. I can promise you that. <laughs> but that's not my job. Now, sometimes, you know, because I have 30 years of experience on the client side and as an agency leader, I will have my colleagues in a coaching session say, listen, do you mind putting on your advice hat for a minute? Because I really would like to run something by you. And with that kind of agreement, I can give advice, but I would never force my advice on somebody without giving them a chance to come up with their own ideas and their own action plan. So Can that's really just... Stephanie, maybe of, and obviously without identifying individuals, but where something has really helped or where it's contributed to people sticking around, because clearly it's creating a culture where people want to stick around. It, this feels like a very high growth entrepreneurial place to be at the moment you can't grow 60 percent without you know there's going to be growing pains aren't there so uh, yeah it's a couple of examples of things that you know have worked or that have really really sort of helped the development in that in that context i think a couple of things that come to mind and and this is one that's really been pretty universal and and almost foundational what i was struck by given the seniority of the people in the program is how often confidence came up as an issue and sometimes expressed specifically as imposter syndrome, but even even just this, and these are senior people, a sense mm. of, of uncertainty about how to have a challenging conversation with the client, for example, or how to address performance issues on their teams. And so when you think about the, the small things, the small frustrations 
that uh, an not just an agency leader, these these could be folks working on the client side too. Um, but the day-to-day -day things that pile up and feel frustrating because you don't know how to take action on them and the cumulative effect of that over time, they can really be corrosive. And, and frankly, it can sap a lot of the enjoyment of the job you know, it just leeches yeah. the life right out of it, right? That's what leads to people leaving, isn't it? That, that's right. That's right. And if people, I think that's a twofold dilemma there, because on the one hand, people don't necessarily have the tools to address those seemingly small frustrations on the job that can escalate and become bigger frustrations. And then they also don't know what to do with their frustration about it. So what the coaching provides is not only... Um, you know, a, a dialogue with me that will get them to action plans and strategies. But it also, if nothing else, gives them one hour a week or one hour every two weeks where they can just vent some of this. And, you know, somebody much wiser than me once said, behind every complaint, there's a dream. And so sometimes when I hear people venting about something that feels negative, if you listen hard enough, you can hear the real aspiration underneath the complaint, which is, I wish it didn't need to be this way. And I wish I could do something to affect it positively. Yeah. And I think also when agencies are going through moments of very rapid expansion and growth, like Lippy Taylor, it's really important, more important maybe than ever before, that people have these tools to negotiate and navigate that change and still feel like they are empowered and can change with the agency, right? And not get left behind. Yes, it's interesting stuff. And that point about clients, because that can make people's lives miserable. If they're working on a toxic client, it can make a whole group of people miserable. And again, they can end up leaving. But I suppose the good thing about growing so fast and in the current environment is that you can actually say goodbye to some of those clients, whereas if we were in a bit of a downturn, it's it's harder to do that. But, but that's probably a good policy to foster moving forward, isn't it? Given that it's a client-oriented business, that you want clients that buy into the same value as you. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, what's interesting is sometimes a client is doing something that is actually fairly innocuous. But what, and this is just human, right? What we can do is build up a narrative about that client or what the client is doing. And it's interesting how in these coaching sessions, sometimes we'll be unpacking what the the person being coached um, thinks and feels about the client and it's interesting when you do the thought exercise of okay if you were to flip your script right now about what the client's doing so rather than saying this client doesn't respect the team and doesn't know how to give productive feedback and is toxic you know the things that people can say about clients what else might be going on with the client right now that is causing her to behave that way or to deliver feedback in that impatient style that's really, you know, defeating you and the team? So it's interesting. It's an exercise sometimes at putting yourself in the shoes of the client, trying to empathize with their reality, which suddenly makes it seem easier to get to a solution for how to find common ground, right? And this stuff may sound intuitive, but Anyone who's in client service knows that when you're in the throes of a challenge and, you know, the pace of the work is just blistering and so on and so forth, it's hard to think clearly like that. And that's where the coaching, again, creates that moment of respite where people can think through these challenges. 
Yeah, and often the client, when it's pointed out to them, they're mortified. They don't actually realise it. There are some genuine yes. toxic clients, don't get me wrong, and sometimes you yes. say goodbye to them. But sometimes it can be just a matter of bringing it to their attention and changing behaviours, and uh, you know, and it, it just makes everyone feel better and, and it improves the whole situation. So, yeah, it's fascinating stuff, Stephanie, and we'll get your input <laughs> on some of these uh, other issues related to work culture and the future of work in some of the news stories but yeah for the time being thanks really great to chat through that diana let's talk about some of the big stories of the week i mean horrific mass shooting at school in texas which uh, i guess it's it's a, a sign that we're back to whatever if you call normal is that we're getting mass shootings again one of the most horrific signs of being back to normal unfortunately and uh, i was I was kind of watching this story from another country, from the UK, and um, it's interesting to see how the rest of the world kind of responds to this because they don't quite understand why it happens in America and why people don't do anything about it. But anyway, talk us through the the way brands have responded to that and the way you know people have been supporting the horrific uh, events uh, down there. Sure. So. Um... Brands have actually largely been silent. Some have spoken out. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon, so the shooting happened last Tuesday. Um, Last Thursday, he urged politicians to come together to enact policy initiatives to make our communities safer from gun violence. His comments also came after one of Goldman Sachs' own employees was fatally shot at random while riding the New York City subway, uh, which happened earlier in May. And then another CEO that spoke out on um, the the school shooting last week was uh, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz. He reassured staff members on Wednesday. He said that the, the shooting left him deeply saddened, outraged, and confused. And he noted that a Starbucks near the school closed the store to serve first responders and families while bringing water and food to nearby hospitals. He said that Starbucks was consulting with experts and examining additional steps it could take, such as donations to support victims and their families. He urged lawmakers to come together to address issues around gun and community safety. And he encouraged employees to write or call their elected officials and make a plan to vote in upcoming elections. And he said that Starbucks will prioritize de-escalation and active shooter training for Starbucks employees. And then on the agency side, Interpublic Group CEO Philippe Krakowski wrote a memo to employees calling the Texas shooting a reminder of the toxic effects of gun violence seemingly compounded by the mental health crisis that so many societies are facing in the wake of the pandemic. IPG is also making a donation to a local organization to help the affected families in Texas. And Omnicom chairman and CEO John Wren reflected on the tragedy, stating that Omnicom condemns these acts of violence and supports common sense gun legislation. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, Stephanie, it's, it's, I think every parent in the country would this resonates with them. It resonates with everyone, but particularly parents, doesn't it? It's almost like an employee yes. engagement thing, isn't it? Because everyone sees this and is just like horrified, and the stories and the young kids and the way it all played out and the way that you know the police response. I, I, there aren't. I'm, 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 I know it's an emotive issue in America, and I, I, I would never 
seek to weigh in on 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 it and and sort of tell people how to what to believe but it it just seems something has to change surely yes it, it yes and it's the it's also the one two punch of 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 the tragedy in Texas with the tragedy in Buffalo just a week prior yeah. you know where where you know black elders were were gunned down and so i think that to your point about employee issues it's it's just it can feel like tragedy piled upon tragedy to the point where people get frozen they don't know what to do anymore and and i do think while i think anyone could universally grieve what happened in texas certainly at at, at our company at our agency we were we were very mindful of the working parents who were afraid to send their kids to school the following day you know and we saw this play out at sandy hook you know we, we yeah. we've seen this before so we were certainly very very focused on how we could take care of our employees in in the wake of all this and certainly providing resources so people could easily find places where they could take action you know all the various causes every town sandy hook promised you know there's a whole list of, of places where people could donate and then we also provided a lot of resources to help parents of young children talk about what had happened and pulled together a number of links from various you know educators and and um, pediatricians and i think what was really poignant about that is that that was not a top-down effort it was actually uh, we have an employee resource group for working parents called the real parents of ltg and they took the lead they pulled the resources they they were responsible for internal communications because it was so meaningful to them but yeah this this continues to be one more thing affecting the emotional well-being of our employees just this pylon of yeah. senseless tragedies yeah, it's difficult. Um, I was in San Francisco a few weeks ago, and Levi's has long been a campaigner for you know safe, gun safety, and they had an installation down near Pier One of on the uh, landscaped area of uh, you know a little stake in the ground for every person who died of gun-related crime, and it was just a sea of, mm. of uh, white you know ornaments there, and it was it really brought it home to you and. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't think we've got any answers to it, but I mean, it's important for business to show empathy and leadership. And, uh, you know, that has been done um, by the people that we've been talking about. So uh, yeah. Diana, in terms of uh, the next story, it's, it's about activist investing with investors. And we've seen a lot more of that over the past few years. And uh, Nelson Peltz, who's previously taken positions with Procter & Gamble and sort of which has led to change there, is now up to stake or taking a stake in Unilever. So talk us through that one. Sure. So um, Nelson Peltz is uh, joining the board of Unilever after amassing a 1.5% stake in the company. And he'll also serve on the company's compensation committee. Peltz said that he will work collaboratively with Unilever management and the board to help drive Unilever's strategy, operations, sustainability, and shareholder value. And Unilever's strategy has been under scrutiny this year after its unsuccessful $63 billion pursuit of GSK's consumer health business. But in investors are bullish about Peltz's news. Shares of Unilever were up 7% on Tuesday morning when the announcement was made. So. Yeah, it sounds like uh, people are all for this. Well, some people are. Uh, the investment community is. Um, <laughs> you know, activist investors are not necessarily the favorite people of the people running the company. And often when we're talking about purposeful business, 
that gets conflated with not prioritizing shareholder value. And uh, there are certain, and a lot of activist shareholders think shareholder value should be the primary reason for the operation of a corporation. And we've talked about that a lot in terms of the business roundtable, how it's changed to have all stakeholders with equal weight. But uh, when times are a bit tougher, Stephanie, I mean, uh, I guess people do revert to value. And when people are struggling to put food on their table or gas prices are up and there's geopolitical strife it is a bit harder to talk about purpose and being purposeful even though even though unilever historically has said that the more purposeful brands are actually the more profitable ones that's right yeah that that was the first thing i thought of when i read this news is because unilever i think you know unilever and possibly png feel like real pioneers in the purpose driven yeah. marketing space even going back to the jim stengel era at png and to watch if that comes under fire. I personally think that would be a shame. And I also think that in these times of disruption, economic, geopolitical, and everything, as you said, Steve, I think that these are the moments where companies and their commitment to purpose can actually become a retaining wall against some of these forces that are not for good, you know, yeah. and, and use their might for societal impact. So how do you reconcile that ability and that capability with the need to deliver shareholder value? It's it certainly conundrum well beyond my my grasp, but um, I, I do hope that Unilever doesn't have to cut into the muscle of all that they've built in the in the purpose space. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, if you look at Dove's campaign for real beauty, for example, it's a real groundbreaking campaign over the last decade and more, you know, which is a Unilever brand. You do wonder whether someone like Nelson Peltz, what's his attitude going to be to Ben & Jerry's, for example, which is the Unilever brand that, you know, is really okay. out there on social issues and what have you. But uh, we'll see how that plays out. But anyway, the market has reacted positively, um, but it just shows you the complicated way that all these agendas play out in and um, in which communication are operating so and we'll be digging into that a lot more at our conference in October in Chicago PR decoded so and the purpose awards let's get back to sort of workplace culture and um, the future of work Diane you did a, a very interesting piece on an uptick in boomerangs so people who've left PR firms presumably thinking they were going to greener pastures but have now boomeranged back and it's uh, it's an interesting trend isn't it Yes. Uh, so I talked to five people about why they left and then returned to their previous PR agencies. As you know, except maybe not Paul Dyer, the great resignation <laughs> has been taking place over the last two years. But many people are finding that a new opportunity isn't always what it's cracked up to be. Some people have left to join other PR firms. Others have left to try out totally different jobs. Like one guy I talked to left a PR firm to start his own record label, but they all returned to their respective agencies. And it turns out that many are returning to the firms they left because they basically miss the workplace's culture. For example, since March 2020, 40 staffers have boomeranged back to Zeno Group globally. And I spoke with Carol Gronlund, who is the chief talent officer at Zeno. And she said that Zeno's values and culture, the firm cites kindness, humanity, and collaboration, are luring staffers back. Meanwhile, Mike Worldwide has had four boomerangs over the last year. MWW President Brett Werner attributes the returnees to the firm's people-first approach, superb client base, and benefits designed by its employees. 
He said that's all driven. Did they, did they email those quotes in, Diana? <laughs> he did not. <laughs> but additionally, PR agencies can benefit from the new skills that Boomerang employees bring on board from the experience they got elsewhere. So they may come back, but be in a totally different role, which makes them happy and the agency happy. So I probably could have talked to like 20 more people for this story. I was kind of shocked at how many people within the industry were boomerangs and the reaction to this story. So many people could relate. So um, yeah, it sounds like it's definitely a trend happening out there. Yeah, I guess uh, people doing, you know, reassessing their lives and then maybe finding that actually, well, I need to pay my mortgage or I need to, <laughs> I've, got, <laughs> I've got to put food on the table. But um, you had hardly any people leave, Stephanie, so you can't have had any boomerang, can you? So, we've, that's, I mean, that's, I was actually double checking those numbers because I thought you might ask. We, we've yeah. had one boomeranger, um, but, and actually now our retention, our turnover is down to 9%, which is, that's a wonderful problem to have, right? But I, I have to say, I think Diane is onto something because I, I, I found this quote from a workplace psychologist, Anthony Klotz, who said that the boomerang trend is going to be the biggest workplace trend coming out of the past two years. So you're you're onto something, Diana. Interesting. She's yeah. usually onto something, PR Week, Diana. And um, <laughs> is Diana, we've seen Elon Musk say that remote work is no longer a possibility. Do you think some of these boomerangs are coming back to slightly different working conditions that maybe their employers have softened their approach a little bit? And what, and what did you make of Elon Musk's comment? It's interesting because some of the boomerangs came back because they missed working in person. Yeah. Or because they didn't get to meet the people in person at their new company. So they didn't really like get to forge real friendships like they would have in person. So that was an interesting takeaway from the story I did. Well, so, we missed seeing you, Diana, for sure. So you know. I missed seeing you all too. And now I see you guys once a week and it's it's nice uh you know, having that in person. PR week editorial time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But what about um, our friend Elon? Remote so work. Elon, Elon is not a fan of remote work. Um, <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> there is a leaked email. I don't know if it's actually been authenticated yet, but there was apparently a leaked email in which Elon Musk said to staffers that remote work is no longer acceptable. And then a Twitter user asked him to address people who think going into work is an antiquated concept. And he replied on Twitter, they should pretend to work somewhere else. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he, I guess, doesn't trust his employees that are working remotely. And uh, Well, yeah, a couple of points there. When one, that's coming from that vibe that people who work from home are basically not working, isn't it? Which is a bit old fashioned because we've proved over the last couple of years that we're actually probably working harder from home. And we should always remember many, many, many people don't have the uh, luxury of working from home. So if you're working in a Tesla automotive factory, you go to the factory. So, you know, we, we, have, we do tend to be in a bit of a bubble in the PR industry and journalism industries because mostly you can work from from a, a remote environment. What did you make of it all, Stephanie, in terms of those sort of comments? Sure. Well, you know, whenever I see, um, certainly CEOs say things publicly that I, I have a visceral reaction to, let's say, I always try to check myself, like, what is it about what he said that is so irritating to me? Because I realize that CEOs, any CEO, has the right to make changes in policies about 
changing the expectation that people will be in the office more days a week or what have you. Of course, we are running businesses, right? But I, I think what I am troubled by is when I see the pendulum swing too hard in either direction, either serving only the needs of the business or only the needs of the employee. And I think that the smart leaders right now, and we see this play out, and I'm proud that my, my own company is doing this. It's still a remote hybrid expectation. Now, may that change down the road? Sure. But no one is mandating anything right now. I think that what upset me the most, as, as Diana pointed out, it was that tweet that Musk said, because the disdain for his employees was so palpable. Now, I know he's an iconoclast. He's a firebrand. He, you know, how much of this is performative? Who knows? But I, I just think just trying to take lessons away for internal communications and CEO communications, just making sure even when there was legitimate frustration about the fact that we're not all physically together yet, that the frustration doesn't turn into blame or even contempt in CEO communications that can actually undermine the leadership perception, right? And that's sort of Musk to a T for me, uh, although Elon Musk doesn't care a whit about what I think about his communication style. I'm very aware of that. Yeah, he's a, he's a one on his own, isn't he? But uh, what yes. we really need, Diana, is one of these Heineken bottle openers that <laughs> work when they used to open a beer. Is that not the, the case? Yeah, so it's um, this is for Heineken's latest global campaign. They've produced a bottle opener that closes work apps when used to open a beer. <laughs> and the device is meant to encourage workers to shut down and enjoy time with friends this summer. And they created kind of like a dramatized short film about the limited edition bottle opener. Consumers can enter to win one on June 8th through their website. And as part of the campaign, comedian Billy Eichner is also getting people to add a work-blocking happy hour with friends to their calendars to be rewarded with Venmo credits. So, yeah, it's just uh, a uh, fun way. Day, Diana, you'd have had one of those sent to the office, wouldn't you, like, like you did with that KFC sun cream that's... Um, <laughs> Maybe you're missing out on your freebies now. I know, I use it for my PR swag museum. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, we're running out of time, but we wanted to, we couldn't go by without mentioning BTS. They joined Karine Jean-Pierre, the new White House press secretary, at her press uh, briefing yesterday. Tell us about it, Diana. Yes, so um, BTS, the, the Korean boy band, visited the White House on Tuesday to push for an end to anti-Asian hate crimes. Their visit also included a, a meeting with President Joe Biden in the Oval Office to discuss the issue. And their visit came on the last day of the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So at the press conference, um, one of the members, uh, Jimin, and I, if I'm not saying his name right, I'm very sorry. We need a leader stamp here, our uh, BTS yeah. corresponder, don't we? Eternity <laughs> leave, unfortunately. Yeah. But Jimin said the band members were devastated by the recent surge of hate crimes in the U.S. Suga said it's not wrong to be different. I think equality begins when we open up and embrace all of our differences. And the Washington Post reported that the press conference was watched by more than 300,000 people at one point, which far exceeded the hundreds of viewers that usually tune into such streams. So that was interesting. 
Yeah, that's a seriously influential group of people and uh, I echo their sentiments, the rise in anti-Asian hate and any other type of hate is one of the unfortunate side effects of the last uh, year or two and um, we really do have to do something about that as a society. But uh, And just finally, PR Week has uh, marked the start of Pride Month by revisiting our PR Week Pride in PR list. So every day throughout June, we'll be profiling an LGBTQ plus communicator and we start Started off with Phil Nardone, who's the founder of Pan Communications, and really looking forward to talking about a lot of great communicators and talking about the issues around pride in PR. So do check that out and let us know if there's anyone we're missing and we should be having on the list. Still a couple of spots left, and that'll run, as I say, all throughout the month of June. But really pleased to be doing that and uh, one of the favorite things that we do. But uh, that's all we've got time for. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Really brilliant to chat to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Diana, always a pleasure. Look forward to seeing you in the office next week. Thank you. You too. <laughs> uh, don't forget our Women of Distinction um, event next Thursday. And it's also uh, Women to Watch. That's Thursday, the June the 9th. If you haven't got your ticket yet, please do join us in person. Great to be doing in-person events again. And that's one of our favorites too. As we mentioned, the uh, PR Decoded and our Purpose Awards, they'll be in Chicago on the 11th and 12th of October. Purpose Awards open for entries at the moment, so please do get your entries into that. There's still a little bit of time to take the Bellwether survey. It will only take you a few minutes, but it really helps us take the temperature of the industry. So do look out for that one in the breakfast briefing. And our Salary Survey Premium Edition is available. And um, now more than ever, I think the data in there is uh, crucial. So you should all get a hold of a copy of that but that's all we've got time for we'll see you next time on the pr week thank you for listening to this week's episode of the pr week to find more episodes visit prweek.com